Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, March 24th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writers Kwai Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. So we're back together again in our virtual bunker uh, to talk about movies and all the stuff we've been doing. Uh, how how are you guys holding up? <laughs> HD, <Yeah>. how... <laughs> uh, I, thought, I thought you were asking the listeners at home. How are you doing out there, listeners? Well, they can't respond. So it's like well, not a good conversation. Well, yeah. <laughs> HD, how are you doing? Um, you know, I'm holding up. Um uh, to uh, hold back the uh, anxious, the anxiety and dread that has been overtaking uh, my mind. I've been buying a lot of art. I don't know if I talked about that, but I finally got sick of staring at blank walls and ordered way too much art that costs way too much money. <laughs> and the frames are even more expensive, which is really frustrating. But some of that art finally arrived um, to my apartment this past week and I've been hanging it up, which has actually been kind of therapeutic and really nice. So when I'm not thinking about the world ending, I'm thinking about home decor. So that's, that's really fun. You know, I've been, you know, I've been trying to do a couple of things to stave off that anxiety, doing some yoga at home, um, making myself brunch, just cooking a lot. So, um, oh yeah, check out my Instagram for fun, uh, cooking adventures. So, uh, yeah, I just been trying to keep busy and keep my mind off things or else I just end up doom scrolling for uh, hours on end. Also, frames, frames are the most frustrating thing about collecting art because, especially if you get like a piece that is an odd size, and you have to yeah. find either get a custom frame or try to find one that will fit it. Yeah, there there are some cheap custom frame places online that I could recommend if you need anything like that. Ooh, um, please, I will. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll send you an email with the the information. I'll include it in the show notes in case people need that information. I will say this: that you talked about like cooking and eating. Uh, Right now I'm on a diet and it's the worst time to be on a diet during like a stressful 
quarantine situation where like all you're doing is like sitting and watching stuff and being bored enough that you want to eat stuff <laughs> like it's, it's it's not uh not a good time for that uh chris has have what have you been up to last time we we talked to you on an earlier uh podcast episode you had you had lost your wallet and you had uh someone had turned it in have you had any other misadventures no i'm doing nothing i'm <laughs> I have I have nothing going on. I'm uh yeah. Everything is just awful. Everything stinks. Let's move on. Move on to someone else other than me. I have nothing good to say. <laughs> Brad, how are you holding up? Um okay for the most part. I would say like the most um I don't know, inconvenient thing about all this aside from not being able to go out and have a lot of fun is that uh my girlfriend is now working from home and she requires like a workstation with two monitors to hook up her computer and she has a lot of teleconferencing calls so it makes it more difficult for me to like i i like having the tv on in the background while i work just because it provides some nice background noise and like i keep having to mute it and wait for her calls to get up and she's doing a lot of training right now so it's just uh it's been a hard thing to try and like reconcile our schedules and stuff with each other but we also we're still enjoying like you know being around each other for most of the day, you know, and that's been fun. We've been doing a lot more uh, cooking and eating out significantly less. You know, we, we've supported a couple of places nearby that we really like just to help them out uh, during this, you know, trying time for small businesses, um, watching a lot of movies. We recently got some some puzzles and coloring books to try and mix things up a little bit. So it's it's OK, but it's also only been a couple of weeks and I'm worried what it's going to be like, you know, for another month and a half or so. Yeah. Brad, you do know that you could have, like, headphones on and, like, have Netflix on your computer in the background, like, playing something in the corner of your screen. But it's it, it's not just the sound. I Like, it's it's stuff that I like to glance at occasionally, too. And that's that's just also something that's going to just be annoying, you know, and slow down my computer. So Yeah, yeah. True enough. Uh, ben, what have you been up to? I got an unusual haircut because, uh, you know, I'm not going out to get my haircut these days. And I actually needed one like before this whole quarantine thing started and I, I missed my window. So um, it started to get longer than I would have liked. So uh, I enlisted my wife to cut my hair for me. And she actually did a great job. I told my sister, I was like, yeah, Amy uh, cut my hair yesterday. And she goes, oh, no. And I was like, no, she actually did a really good job. And she's like, oh, yay. Okay, good. So, uh, yeah, it ended ended up working out surprisingly well. She didn't even, like, watch a YouTube video or anything beforehand. She just sort of, like, went for it. And it looks – I've had worse haircuts by a long shot. So uh, I don't know if this is going to be – Was she using clippers or was she using, like, one of those, like, shave things? I don't know the terminology. Um, I think she had something that she said were like small scissors specifically for cutting hair. Um, but there weren't like professional, you know, shears or whatever the the terms are, but, um, but yeah, you know, it got the job done. So I just figured, uh, I'm sure if everybody else hasn't had their, their hair cut by their significant other, I'm guessing that's probably in the cards for a lot of people (laughs) at this point. So I'm actually um, in the same boat. I, I was supposed to get a haircut before this all happened and now I have it and now it's getting unruly (laughs) and my girlfriend wants to cut it, but I'm like, I don't know about that. (laughs) I would say go for it. You're both weak. You you both are are not embracing the fact that we're approaching the end of the world. I'm full on quarantine beard. Hashtag quarantine beard. Beard (laughs) does not get shaved. Uh, I clean up the neckline because I'm not a monster, but 
I'm going to grow out, guys. For as long as I'm quarantined in this house, my beard grows. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, tra- I'm tracking on Instagram. People can see my transformation to Mountain Man. Like, if I can't go to Bird's Barbershop, where I always go and get, like, a professional to make my beard look good, I'm letting it take over my entire damn face. So, quarantine beard, <laughs> hashtag quarantine beard. Y'all need to get your act together and embrace the fact that let yourself go full Mad Max. Let it happen. Come on. <laughs> Does anyone here actually have uh, experience cutting each other's or their, their their own hair? Never. No, I've never done it either. Hashtag no. quarantine beard. <laughs> <laughs> I I also was supposed to get a haircut like a, a week ago, so it, it, it's growing out, and I, th- I I feel like I would be okay with my significant other cutting my hair if like we had like uh not shears but what's the other thing like a, like the shaver kind of thing like okay they're actually called clippers i think are they called clippers okay yeah, that's, what, that's what my barber always calls them yeah because i could be like put put a you know put a one on that and just go all around my head and you know it can't turn out that bad <laughs> yeah i'm actually actually peter i'm thinking of uh, a look i used to have long for slash film was uh full beard shaved head so i'm thinking i may go that direction full quarantine beard but <laughs> shaved head not even to worry about it anymore Full beard, shaved head, can't lose. <laughs> hashtag quarantine beard. H- hashtag quarantine head at that point. Yeah. But uh, okay, let's uh, let's talk about what we've been reading, Jacob. Uh, you've been doing some reading. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm I'm trying to do a series of projects, keep myself occupied. Like in addition to my model painting and some video game stuff, I'll talk about later on. I decided I'm going to use quarantine to catch up on my Japanese uh, manga, or is it manga? HG is it manga or manga? Manga. Manga. Okay. For those of you who don't know, these are uh, Japanese comics, and they're, it's, it's a world as big and as varied as American comics, but, you know, as someone who knows American comics pretty well, I only dip my toe into manga. So I decided to um, really go all in and read a backlog of stuff that I've been building up and letting it sit around, because I'll get around to it one day. So starting with something that I've read a little bit of before, and that's uh, Volumes 5 through 8 of Full Metal Alchemist. Uh, it's one of HG's favorite things in the world, this, this franchise, which is an anime and a manga. Uh, and I've been reading the hardcover releases, which are a little bit bigger than the regular paperback co- uh, copies. So um, this is a roughly halfway through the series uh, with, with Volume 8. And uh, Full Metal Alchemist, it's really good. It's really, really Isn't good. It's it really uh, good? It's really good, HD. Um, uh, <laughs> it's essentially a fan- fantasy version of World War One adjacent Europe, uh, where state-trained alchemists who can, like, you know, t- conjure elements and things out of thin air um, are essentially like travel around doing the works of, of cops and soldiers and there's conspiracies and it's about two brothers one of one of whom has has lost his body and just a soul in a suit of armor and his brother who has uh, robot parts after losing his <laughs> losing parts of his body in a accident uh, essentially get involved in a massive sweeping fantastic fantasy conspiracy that starts off being uh pretty simple and straightforward and grows increasingly complex and violent and disturbing as it goes along. And uh, when I first read the first volume back in the day, I talked about this on, on this podcast a while back, I thought it was a really fun action comic. Now I'm at the point where I'm really invested in the actual st- world and the storytelling and the characters. And, and it's um, all super sad now. Yeah, it's, it's very sad now. And, and it follows the anime tradition, at least from my limited anime tradition, of uh, bad dads being the cause of everything in, in Japanese art, apparently. It's all bad dads. Yeah, uh, but uh, Full Metal Alchemist. Uh, HD, I know you're a big fan of the anime. Did you ever, is, is it the manga too for you? 
I actually was a bigger fan of the anime. I came around to the anime adaptation first, and the first anime uh, actually was airing at the same time as the manga was being published. So the anime overtook the um, the manga and decided to go with its own route um, for the fi- for the ending of the story, which was really interesting because it ends up in almost an opposing place where the manga ends up being, which is why a another anime adaptation called Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood comes along like 10 years later to adapt the manga properly. But I'm one of the few who actually prefer the original anime. I think it was trying to do some more interesting things in terms of um, tackling the cycles of war and violence in humanity, uh, whereas the Full Malchus manga and Brotherhood is a more fantasy concept. I think there's some more interesting alt-history stuff going on in the original anime. It does it a little bit uh, messy in a, like the way it tackles some of the issues of, of race and violence and everything, but it's it's really good. And um, people prefer either one or the other, but both are amazing, the anime and the manga. So And Full Metal Alchemist and Full Metal uh, Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood are both available on Netflix. I'll get around to watching. I want to finish the manga first. So however long it takes in the release these hardcovers, uh, I, I want to have that the peer experience. Then I'll go back and watch both adaptations and see how that figure fares. So that's um, Full Metal Alchemist. Uh, for, well, by the way, it's written and uh, illustrated by Hiromu Arakawa. Uh, for those of you who want to look it up. Uh, so Wait, my, uh, Jacob, I have a question for yes. you. Because you're yes. talking about graphic novels and you're talking about comic books, right? Like mm-hmm. comic book stores, like aren't they st- stopping the shipment of comics to comic book stores? How, how are you going to deal? Uh, I'm just going to catch up on my backlog of things that I have not read. I, I have a bad habit of buying more than I could ever possibly read. So now I have a, a period of weeks or months where I'm going to just dive in. And in this case, it's my my dusty manga corner of things that I thought, oh, this looks interesting. Oh, I heard this is good, but I never got around to reading it. Uh, like The Drifting Classroom. HG, have you read or seen an adaptation of The Drifting Classroom? I have never heard of this, so please tell more. Uh, this is written and illustrated by uh, Kazuo Umezu, uh, and it's from the 1970s. It's, I think it was published in 1972-1974, and it's a uh, science fiction horror series about an elementary school in Japan that one day vanishes into thin air, and nobody knows what happened to it, but we follow the, the school where it's it's transplanted into the future, thousands if not millions of years into the future of Earth in a wasteland. And it follows this, these kids, first graders to sixth graders, as they try to survive, as they have to form a civilization. Uh, as they learn how to, they have to hold elections eventually. They have to – all the adults die off pretty quickly for various reasons. So they have to essentially find a way to create civilization in a wasteland where they're full of monsters and human nature where things just go wrong for everybody. And it's – it's kind of astonishing how modern it feels in many ways. Uh, this is published, I'm comparing it to like superhero comics from like the 70s uh, around the same time. And the sophistication in storytelling here is so much more modern and ahead of its time. Uh, it still has some notes of its time, like uh, characters speak their mind way too often. Like uh, the, a lot of times modern comics will, you know, have interior monologues or let, or, or let the art tell what a character is feeling. Whereas here characters are always talking about their feelings, which is a very much a time uh, a sign of that time uh and there are a few um questionable social cues from characters who are uh, that are dated like a character who 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 spends a page explaining why women shouldn't be allowed to lead i don't know if it's a character speaking or the author speaking his own personality i do not know uh but for the most part 99 percent of drifting classroom is extremely scary extremely tense and effective uh and i can't imagine it being made today or if they want to adapt it today they'd have to like age them up the high school students because it doesn't pull its punches. There are, 
this has a high body count of children, first to sixth grade, dying in horrible ways. It's never gratuitous, like it's never lingering on extreme violence, but it also acknowledges the fact that uh, if this happened to a bunch of children, bad things would happen to those kids. Uh, so that's a drifting classroom, and I read the first. Is there? It's being released in a series of hardcovers, uh, covering the first one is a like I think all like eight hundred pages long, covering the entire series in three volumes. And I read the first eight hundred pages in one sitting. I just couldn't put it down. So that's uh, the drifting classroom. Uh, I also read Abara, a uh, a incredibly incomprehensible uh, series. Like it's only it's only like twelve chapters, so it's not very long. Uh, but it was it, it it it's I've heard it talked about, and it's just this dystopian uh, horror series that at first I was reading it going, "Am I stupid or does it not make any sense?" I I kept on trying to wait for the point where it would come together and I would understand what was going on, and it never happened. So I started poking around online. I found like like plot descriptions of what's going on, but none of that context is in the actual comic. Uh, so I do not know what a how Abara is a thing and why it's collected and regarded in any way because I literally couldn't make sense heads or tails of it. HD, I've heard about this one. I actually haven't. You're digging into some that I, um, that are a little bit uh, out of my wheelhouse. All right. Well, I'll talk about one that's a bit more famous, and this is uh, Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin. Uh, and we talked about Gundam on this podcast before. I've, I watched some of the Gundam anime back in the day, uh, not enough to become an expert. Because trying to understand Gundam, which is uh, Japanese giant robots at war, um, it's just a massive, massive undertaking. It's like trying to, you know, understand the entire Superman mythos for all of Batman. It's it's that huge, that wide ranging, that complex, that deep. And Mobile Suit Gundam: The Origin is a uh, manga adaptation of the original anime from the seventies, uh, but it's being um, it was written and um, drawn by one of the original series uh, designers. It's meant to uh, modernize, smooth over, polish up the very original story, the very original series, and bring it forward to like modern day in a way so that it's canon, it makes sense, and acts as an entryway point for people who want to jump into Gundam. And I'm really enjoying it so far. It's a, it's a 12 volume thing. I read the first volume, and it, it's you know it's giant robots at war, and it's very much a war story. Uh, and it's uh, I'm, I'm impressed by how it it's not like you know. Uh, robots are cool. It's robots are cool, but war sucks. This is very tragic. Why is everybody dying? <laughs> Which is a really, really uh, fine line to walk. So that's a uh, mobile suit uh, Gundam, the origin. And I'll keep everyone posted. I'm planning to read a lot more Japanese comics while I'm quarantined myself. Oh, Jacob, um, if you have uh, the chance to either buy this or pick it up, I recommend Veroni Kenshin, which is a manga that I think is actually superior to its anime adaptation. You know, I've I've seen that title all the place. I used to work at a comic book store, and that was a very popular title. So uh, I will have to add it to the list. Chris, what have you been reading? Uh, because <laughs> it's the reason for the season. I've started rereading uh, The Stand by Stephen King, and I'm realizing this was a huge mistake because uh, <laughs> I, I you know I liked The Stand when I read it many years ago, but it never. Um, scared i never found it one of stephen king's scarier books but it's a lot scarier now that the world is ending and uh the what's what makes it scary is not so much the the virus itself um if you don't know the stand is about uh, a super flu that wipes out like 99 percent of the world uh but it, it's not really the the illness itself it's more of the way that stephen king um in the in the first few like the first few hundred pages are just all about 
society slowly breaking down and the way he lays it out. And this book was written, you know, over 30 years ago, it feels very, very similar to, you know, not everything happening right now, but many things happening right now. And it's sort of giving me um, (laughs) extra anxiety. So I probably shouldn't have started rereading this at the same time. It's such a great read. And even though it's, you know, one of his longer books, I I find myself like pouring over it very easily. So uh, yeah, if you, if you want some extra anxiety right now, pick up the stand. Okay, let's talk about what we've been watching. I've been watching a lot of things, but over the weekend, or actually on Friday, I received a text message from David Chen of Slash Home and Slash Homecast, and he was like, Peter, you need to watch Tiger King. And I think I responded to Dave. I was like, Dave, sure, but I've never even heard of that. What is Tiger King? And he's like, Peter, I I don't even want to spoil anything for you. Just go watch it. It's on Netflix. So Kitra and I turned this on on Friday night, and uh, we couldn't stop watching it. It's it's I I, I will I'm not going to spoil anything from the show, uh, but w- I will give you the the brief overview, which is this is a Netflix documentary series. Uh, it's not fictional. It's 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 documentary. It is seven episodes long, and it is set in the world of the big cat. Like, how would you describe it, Chris? Because I, you've also seen this. Like, it's hard to like, uh, well, sum- they, they're described as zoos, but, uh, they're, it's basically, <laughs> if you don't know this, you can literally just go out and buy a tiger. If you have the money, it's, it's not like, it's not like a hard thing to do apparently. And there, and there are more tigers in captivity in the United States of America than there are in the wild right now. So it's apparently this huge uh, market for rich people buying tigers. Yeah. And then they have these like little small quote unquote zoos, which kind of exploit the tigers. They breed like little uh, cubs and people can come in and take photos with them for money. Um, uh, You know, when I started watching this, I thought that's what this show was going to be about i thought it was going to be kind of like a blackfish kind of explore uh, exploration of uh how you know this bad uh you know them abusing animals and these zoos and i I would honestly say i I think probably the filmmakers probably entered into this thinking that's what the, the the movie or the series that they were filming but what quickly becomes apparent is this is about some interesting characters in this world. This is, this is like, um, I've explained it. Like, this is like, if you're watching King of Kong of the big cat community and, uh, every single character is a variation of Billy Mitchell and are horrible people. <laughs> um, that, that's what, but they're, they're horrible, interesting people that you can't stop watching. Uh, this, this movie has, or this show has so many eccentric, interesting characters. Uh, the, the guy that it, it kind of follows at the core is this guy named Joe Exotic, um, who is a uh, he's a gay gun-toting cowboy with a mullet who has a reality TV show about his zoo, and uh, he's in a war with this this other um, zoo owner. I guess a, a not zoo owner. She she calls herself a 
she's trying to protect the animals, right? But, like, she's, I don't know, she doesn't seem, like, quite, like, the innocent person. Uh, her name's Carol Baskin, and uh, they, they kind of have this, this almost, like, uh, pro-wrestling-style feud on the internet. Uh, she may or may have not killed her husband. I'm not going to go into any specifics, but this show goes into cults. There's murderers. There's drug kingpins. There's con men. There's a presidential election. <laughs> there's um, uh, every character is crazier than the last, and it's just so interesting. It, it like it starts as like this expo- exploration of like this this world of big cats and it, it turns into almost like a Coen brothers plot of, of sorts. Uh, you know, there's some true crime elements here. Uh, I, I, when I was a few episodes and I put in our Slack channel, I was like, guys, you got to watch tiger King. And, uh, I think everybody over the weekend, at least in the film Twitter bubble was talking about this, this document or this documentary series, tiger King. And Chris, you must have seen enough people talking about it that you you've turned this on, right? Uh, well, I was planning to watch it in general just because I'm I'm I knew it was like a true crime thing, and I'm addicted to the Netflix true crime stuff. But uh, yeah, this is um you it, it can't be overstated how insane <laughs> this thing is. Um, you know, everyone's saying it's crazy, and honestly, they're underselling how crazy it is. Um. Like every single person in this documentary is just uh, a lunatic from from start to finish, and they're they're uh, there's really not a single good person amongst like any of them. Even uh, you know Carol Baskin, who's sort of you know a victim here, seems kind of like a crazy person herself, and it's just it's it's very engrossing and it's very shocking, and you have no idea where it's going to go and. Uh, even though this is it's seven episodes and I feel like a lot of new true crime things seem to be stretching themselves too thin, like uh, McMillions, which had way too many episodes. This this one actually justifies its length. It's so like addictive that it's like you almost wish it were longer. And uh, yeah, my, my wife and I, we burned through it over the weekend. These char- I have a question for you guys about this. Um, Shoot. I, I listened to a podcast, um, the, the, the true crime podcast, Over Your Dead Body, covered this in the same series or the same event, I think, last year. And I listened to that podcast and I found it to be a really gripping story. But I also found the depictions of animal abuse in audio form so upsetting that I can't imagine watching it. Can you, how does that fare they, on the screen? They honestly don't really show any abuse. Cause I, was, I was worried about that myself because I. I have no problem with people dying, but man, I get really upset when animals get hurt. And while there's some talk of the animal abuse and uh, there's like a vague hint of it, they really don't have, it's like not on screen. So if you're worried about that, I would say you can, you can sit through this because I'm, I'm super sensitive to that. And if I can get through this, uh, I think you can too. Yeah. It's really not bad in that respect. And it actually seems like, I'm wondering if, like, lawyers and stuff kept Netflix from going into that area, or maybe it just doesn't It doesn't play into the story that this thing became, because it became more about these characters than it became about the, the zoos themselves. Um, but it's, it's insane. Like, if this was a feature film, it would be by... Um, 
Oh my god, what, what's uh, what's the guy that works with Danny McBride all the time? I'm, I'm blanking. Uh, Jody Hill, David Gordon Green, David Gordon Green. Jody oh, Hill. Actually, it could be either. It could be either yeah. of those guys. It would be a movie by them, and it would be so ridiculous. It would be unbelievable. Like you would not believable. It would not be believable in any sort because you know this main guy, like uh, Joe Exotic, like he. He has a music career. He's a, a stage magician. It, it's just so ridiculous. It's it's so ridiculous. I I can't recommend this enough. This is like the perfect show for us being on lockdown. It's binge worthy. Uh, I, I I can't. Everybody should turn off this podcast and go watch this this show. Report back because uh, it, it is just so insane. So, uh, Tiger King, that is on Netflix. I can't uh, recommend it enough. Uh, the I also spent the weekend, I, I was watching shows that have not come out yet. I, I, I got a bunch of Amazon screeners, um, I, which I'm not, I guess, allowed to tell you my opinion on. But I watched Bosch Season 6, uh, and I also watched this show called Upload, which is from, uh, it's the new show from the creator of Off The Office, Parks and Rec, and King of the Hill. So uh, it's a big show coming to Amazon, I think, in May. And I watched both of those shows. I watched all the episodes they gave me. I can't tell you what I thought of them. But I guess you could read into the fact that I didn't stop after one episode. Um, <laughs> uh, but I can't talk about them. So, uh, yeah. So uh, I, what I can talk about is I did watch Westworld Season 3, Episode 2. Uh, this episode goes a little bit into the, the third episode park war world and uh it explores this it, it, it you know last episode we were talking about this last uh water cooler i was really excited for Westworld, and i know chris has been kind of you know he's seen a few episodes here and i, I, I he's been raining on my parade saying it's it's gonna go he sees it going downhill like season two did i am i'm waiting for that to happen and this episode i really really enjoyed it I, I, every second, I'm like waiting for like the shoe to drop, where like I'm gonna like something's gonna happen where I I don't like it, and I'm just enjoying it so much. I like Maeve. I love um, I love this season. They're doing a thing where, where you know, the first season of Westworld had this thing which I'm sure everybody listening knows, where there was a conceit that by the end of the season there was a big reveal that made you recontextualize everything you had seen previously uh season two did that in a such a convoluted ridiculous way that it was impossible to follow and um you know they weren't fooling the redditors the redditors were figuring it all out anyways uh what i like about season three so far at least in these first two episodes is that they are doing these setups and reveals kind of within the episode so it's not like giving you it's not I, I think I would be mad at some of these reveals if it was something like they kept that reveal until late into the season but it's the setup and the payoff is in the same episode and uh, I know that the, that makes for like a less of like a you know t- surprise twist or something like that but I, I think I think I'm on board for that so I, I am still enjoying Westworld season 3 at least two episodes in, and uh, I I just want to spend more time in this world. So I'm I'm kind of excited to to see more. Uh, Brad, what have you been watching? So um, since South by Southwest got canceled, some of the uh, publicists who were representing 
indie movies that were playing at the fest, supposed to have the world premiere and whatnot, still wanted to uh, push the movies out there, get coverage, hopefully help with distribution sales and whatnot. Uh, so I've been partaking in some of those uh, screeners remotely from home. Uh, and we've been publishing some reviews on Slash Film if you've been paying attention. So uh, one of the ones that I watched was called Insert Coin, which is a documentary about Midway Games. Uh, this is the video game company that has made such huge hits as Mortal Kombat, uh, NBA Jam. And the documentary basically chronicles the rise and fall of Midway Games during the uh, resurgence of arcade games in the 1990s. Uh, and what made Midway Games stand out from a lot of the other arcade games at the time is that they were using this technology to digitally uh, scan real images to bring lifelike characters uh, into video games. Uh, it's why, you know, uh, the characters in Mortal Kombat looked so realistic. And uh, Midway Games also worked on the Terminator 2 arcade game that had the guns that you were uh, shooting all over at the different uh, Terminators and whatnot. And so the documentary chronicles the making of all these different games and just how huge they were. There's cool behind-the-scenes footage of them uh, recording the people who were the stand-ins for Mortal Kombat players doing the uppercuts and uh, leaning on like um, small stairs to do jump kicks and that kind of thing. And it's really funny see seeing this footage. And also just like hearing all the people who made these games talk so enthusiastically about this time when arcade games are making a comeback. And it's crazy how much money some of these games actually made. The the most nuts thing, or just the most surprising thing I think that I learned is that uh, NBA Jam was so popular in arcades that it made over a billion dollars in quarters when it was out, which that, is insane. That's insane. Yeah. Crazy. How, do you, how, how do they even track that, though? That, that feels... I'm skeptical. <laughs> no, I, I mean, apparently, it's it's a legit number. Like, it's... Um, the, the arcades were huge at the time, and they keep, they kept track of... Um, they talk about how they had just... Um, they were having games that were glitching because the games were so filled up with quarters that they couldn't take anymore, and so they had to, like, start unlo unloading them faster. Uh, but it's a fascinating documentary. It's pretty stylish. And, uh, yeah, it's definitely, I don't know when it's going to come out or anything like that, but whenever it gets a chance to uh, get a release, you should definitely seek it out. It's It made me realize just how influential Midway Games was in the kind of video games that I played as a kid, because every single game they went through, I was like, oh my gosh, I played that insane amounts when I, when I was a kid, uh, starting all the way back with NARC, which was one of their, their earliest hits. So, uh, yeah, Insert Coin is called, and it's very good. Uh, I also watched another documentary called We Don't Deserve Dogs, which is a uh, essentially a portrait of dogs and their owners across a bunch of different countries uh, around the world. It goes to Chile and uh, Italy and Romania and uh, Turkey and all these different places. And it's basically these small uh, portraits of different people and their life stories and how uh, basically their dogs that they have, you know, uh, help them in traumatic situations or have made their lives better and just how how wonderful you know it is to have these pets it's very much a love letter to dogs but it's also a fascinating insight into uh the humans who who own them and it's uh the just the way it jumps around to all the different countries is all these uh you know lush cinematic shots of various landscapes and of course the dogs uh, if you love dogs, then you're going to love this documentary because they are just so cute and wonderful and loyal to their owners. And you can just see how much how much they love them. You get to see dogs hanging out in pubs in Scotland, which is like overwhelmingly cute. 
Uh, so that's another uh, indie that is was supposed to play South by Southwest. Doesn't have a release date or anything yet, but hopefully uh, it gets released sometime in the future. Um, I also watched a movie. Uh, I had to break up the the documentary one that I had. I watched a movie called Critical Thinking, which is a, uh, a movie directed by and starring John Leguizamo. Uh, and it's the true story of um, a Miami high school uh, team uh, that a chess team that went on to win the national chess championships. Uh, and this is a school that was in, in uh, the inner city part of Miami. Uh, one of those schools that kind of ha- is known for having a lot of troubled youth, problems with the law because it's located in, in, in areas where there's a lot of drug dealing and crime that, you know, entices these kids to drop out of school and become, uh, you know, essentially career criminals and get caught up, you know, in a, a, a dark life of breaking the law. Uh, so it's um, the easiest way to describe it um, is Dangerous Minds meets Searching for Bobby Fischer. But I feel like it packs so much more of a punch than just being like that, even though it's it really does combine, you know, the those two kinds of, of worlds into one. But John Leguizamo is so good in this movie. Uh, the young cast is also incredible. I was particularly impressed by uh, Jorge Lundenborg Jr., who is uh, Haley Steinfeld's friend in uh, the Bumblebee movie, the Transformers spinoff. Um, and it's, it's just really good. You know, it, it makes uh, chess is obviously isn't the most exciting thing to watch, but uh, it makes it exciting in a similar way that certain scenes in Searching for Bobby Fischer did, uh, especially because these kids, you know, are they're in high school. They're a little bit more wisecracking. And so the, their style of play is a little bit, you know, it's it's funnier because of the way that they kind of distract and mess with the other players. Um, but it's it has a great message at its core. And uh, I really, really uh, love this movie. What else um, have you been watching? A couple more documentaries. Uh, one of them is called For Mad Men Only, uh, and it is a documentary that focuses on Del Close. And Del Close is uh, a comedy legend for anybody who is a comedy nerd and knows a lot about improv comedy, things like the Upright Citizens Brigade, Second City, uh, people who went to Saturday Night Live. Uh, he is the um, one of the pioneers of long-form improv, or what is called Herald Improv. And it's something that was taught to... Pretty much uh, almost anybody who's ever been on uh, Saturday Night Live, from Bill Murray to John Belushi to Amy Poehler, Tina Fey, almost anybody and everybody that you love who has become a big comedy star learned something from Del Close. But Del Close is also kind of a crazy person. Uh, He was an alcoholic. He was addicted to drugs. He practiced witchcraft. And this documentary uh, chronicles his life as he was retelling it in sort of this weird fashion as a horror anthology comic series called Wasteland for DC Comics. And so it's this mix of dramatized reenactment footage with James Urbaniak playing Del Close, uh, talking heads with various comedians and and improv people, and uh, a lot of comic panels, some stop-motion animation. uh, And it's just this, this great feast of just digging into who Del Close was and how much you know, of a madman and a brilliant guy he really was and what he did uh, for comedy. And so there's there's so many interesting tidbits to learn about this and really gives you a different kind of appreciation for improv as opposed to just being something like, whose line is it anyway? And Del Close, you know, thought it could be something so much more. And for somebody like me, I just like, I love sinking my teeth into this documentary. Um, So that's uh, another South by Southwest documentary. We'll hopefully you get to see it sometime in the future. Uh, and then I also watched Once Upon a Time in Uganda, uh, or Uganda, which was formerly known as uh, Lights, Camera, Uganda. And this follows um, a, a an American actor and f- festival programmer who 
discovers this viral movie trailer that was made in Uganda um, of this filmmaker named Isaac Nubana, who works in a makeshift studio uh, in this impoverished part of the African country called Wakaliwood. And they make these insane off-the-wall action movies inspired by Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee and Sylvester Stallone with really shoddy, uh, you know, um, cheap computer visual effects, uh, a lot of uh, makeshift props like, you know, guns that are made from just scrap metal and, and lawnmower motors. And they're just, they're hilarious and insane with, with the action. And uh, he, since before this documentary came out, even he, uh, the Wakaliwood production studio, as it were, started to become famous because their movie trailers were going viral on YouTube. And you get to follow uh, the discovery of them and like the trouble they have as they're trying to kind of build their profile and get recognized by, uh, you know, nations outside of, of Uganda. And it's just, it is uh, super entertaining to watch and it's crazy to see just how much ingenuity and passion there is from all these people because it's just a community of people volunteering to make movies and do whatever jobs needed to be done um, with this guy who was you know just wanted to make movies over and over again and you get to see clips from them which which are just are so funny um, so yeah once upon a time in Uganda and again South by Southwest hopefully you get to see see it one of these days. <laughs> Brad, why are you tempting me with all these movies I can't see? <laughs> what the heck? Well, let me tell you about one movie that you can see, Peter. Or maybe you've already seen it. It's called Jumanji, The Next Level. <laughs> I, unfortunately, I have seen it. You didn't like it? I, yeah, I, I feel like I didn't like the characterization. Like, the they, they play with the characters that were inside the bodies in a way that should be fun, but... It just like I I don't know I, I just was not into it. I I liked it I um I liked it about as much as I liked the first movie, which I think is is pretty entertaining because of the characterizations and they do uh, mix it up here by switching who is inside which video game avatar body. Um, I I honestly never got sick of watching Dwayne Johnson pretend to be Danny DeVito and Kevin Hart being Danny Glover. Uh, those two they they were both hilarious to me throughout this entire movie and they they made it work better than. Uh, it seemed like it might, but this I have the same problems with this movie that I did with the first one in that it doesn't truly take advantage of the video game setting in a way that feels like any anybody who wrote this actually plays video games <laughs> or use them in a way that like actually enhance the story beyond just a couple gags or plot points because everything that unfolds in this movie doesn't really feel like a video game quest or like they have to do anything that feels like it's from any actual real video game. Um, it's, it's very much just a fantasy adventure movie, which is, it's still fun. You know, there's, there's good, uh, set pieces and action sequences and, and whatnot, but uh, it's just missing that touch that makes it feel like you're really watching what would be, you know, a, a video game play out, uh, as a movie. So, uh, I, I was entertained. I thought it was pretty funny and whatnot, but still, still having the same problems that, it, that the, I had with the first one. You know, another one of my problems with this movie is like, it used like the first or the second movie, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, uh, introduced these concepts of the video game of, like, you know, uh, having multiple lives, the NPCs, all these, like, interesting things, which I, I agree, they weren't completely, uh, they, they set them up and they don't really do much for them later. But uh, in this one, they don't introduce anything new. It's just, like, more of the same. Well, and, and the one thing they do introduce feels like uh, something that, doesn't really make sense in the world of the video game, which is um, how they are able to 
switch certain personalities from one avatar to another beyond the new characters that are introduced. There's there's a new element introduced that allows them to swap uh, personalities between characters to make it easier for them to quote unquote play the game. And it just doesn't, it, it's a plot device, but it's something that doesn't make sense within the realm of the video game. And so it was very frustrating to me. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, what else uh, have you been watching? And then one thing I rewatched recently that I just wanted to make a note of because I think this movie is sorely underrated, um, and that's Bedazzled. Uh, this is a very goofy movie. I wouldn't necessarily even say that it's a really good movie, but this movie is very funny to me because of just uh, how over-the-top and exaggerated it is. I don't think they really make a lot of comedies like this anymore. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Bedazzled is a movie starring Brendan Fraser and Elizabeth Hurley uh, that came out all the way back in the year 2000. And Brendan Fraser plays this kind of uh, socially awkward, annoying uh, tech guy working at a company who the people he thinks are his friends don't really like him and they're pretty annoyed by him and he just can't really seem to find anybody who is interested in him. And so then he meets Elizabeth Hurley and she's the devil and so she offers him uh, a deal to you know basically get whatever he wants to, a certain number of wishes uh, in exchange for his soul. And so... He goes through all these different scenarios of trying to fall in love with this girl of his dreams who works uh, in his office. And Brendan Fraser just goes through, runs through this gamut of hilarious, goofy characters. And it makes me so mad that Brendan Fraser fell away from the spotlight and didn't get to do more stuff like this because he's so good in this movie. I, I love him in this movie. I love all the characters he plays. Uh, and it's just it's just such a fun movie. And it's directed by uh, the late Harold Ramis as well, if you need an, a reason to uh, either revisit this or watch it for the first time. It's uh, very much um, a, an enjoyable comedy. This is like from like the Jim Carrey era of comedy, right? Um, kind of. It was it was kind of in between like his most famous roles of, of like Liar Liar and Ace Ventura and The Mask uh, and then some of his other stuff from the early 2000s because he did Bruce Almighty and I want to say like 2003 or something like that, which yeah. he, and he was kind of on his way out from those roles at that point. Um, so so kind of, but but not really. Not really. Okay, Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, I start off with a movie whose set I visited three years ago, but I never actually saw, and that was uh, Mortal Engines, the Peter Jackson produced uh, box office flop, one of the uh, one of the biggest money losers in Hollywood history, uh, a fantasy science fiction film about the distant future where cities are mobile and they fight each other. And it is, this set visit was amazing, Peter. I don't know if you remember when I went on it to Wellington. It had pretty much the same crew and a lot of the same uh, uh, backing as Lord of the Rings movies. Uh, so it had like so many people who'd worked on the Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit movies were making this. And it was a two day long set visit. I saw so many amazing things and amazing sets. And, movie was very poorly received and it's about to leave uh streaming on hbo uh now so i decided to give it a watch finally and it's okay uh it's fine it's directed by christian rivers who did second unit on, on the lord of the rings the hobbit movies and i guess my whole thing is a 200 million dollar science fiction fantasy epic of this size and scope can't be okay it has to be spectacular uh and there's something irresponsible about spending so much money on something that is this that is this okay um did anybody else see this at the time? I'm curious what the, what the response from everyone else is. I saw it and absolutely hated it. It is one oh. of my least favorite <laughs> uh, blockbusters of this entire century so far. I, I well, saw it and I thought it was I thought it was okay. It, it's not good though. 
Oh man, I Stephen Lang plays a mocap mummy cyborg, which is cool. But I wish the entire movie was as cool as Stephen Lang playing a mocap mummy mummy cyborg. It's just <laughs> hmm. I actually wasn't really interested in this movie until you said that. Now I kind of want to see it. Hey, see, don't, do like, it. don't do it. Don't do it. South Korean pop star Jihai plays a role and, and it's a, a minor role, but it's like watching her next to like the the two leads is like watching the two leads are, are like Shasta Diet Coke and she's Coca-Cola and it's like <laughs> it's, it's like why are you even you can't cast the most white bread people imaginable and put them next to like a- actors who are making them all look bad everything else you're, you're the lead in this movie drag it down and I wish I had more to like because uh, when you're that's the problem with a set visit is you go on that set especially a set visit where they give you lots of access like, let's talk to everybody and you know how hard everyone worked to make a movie of this size it is a huge movie it is a massive undertaking and it is such a like a murmur of a movie when it should be you know an epic. But that's Mortal Engine. It's about the it's about to leave uh, HBO now or HBO Go, whatever service you use. They were it'll probably vanish forever after that. So if you want to check out Mortal Engines where it goes, you should. Uh, I also watched The Influence, a a film streaming on uh, Netflix right now. It is a um, Spanish horror film. Uh, Actually, uh, adapted by a Ramsey from a Ramsey Campbell short story. He, Ramsey Campbell is a uh, British horror writer. His stuff's really excellent and often very unnerving. So I was interested to see what a Spanish filmmaker would do with this. And the influence is okay. Uh, it's totally adequate. It's a totally adequate um, tale of possession and evil houses. It's a woman returns home with her family to take care of her ailing mother. Ailing mother. Uh, ailing mother is a witch who does not intend to die, and from her coma tries to essentially take over the body of her granddaughter and it's adequate it has plenty of good scares atmosphere it's a, a very effective gore gag involving a hand being completely wrecked <laughs> i enjoyed very much uh but it's it, it's fine uh yeah I, um chris uh, i'm gonna run by every horror movie i've watched this week by you have you seen the influence no this is one i have not actually seen yeah I, i'm curious to see what you think it's worth watching for the hand being destroyed scene <laughs> At the very least. Uh, speaking of Spanish language uh, horror movies uh, that I watch streaming, The Entity. This is not the 1980s uh, film starring Barbie, Barbara Hershey. This is a 2015 uh, Peruvian film, found footage, released. It's a found footage film filmed in 3D for its Peruvian release. So take from that what you will. I don't understand how any you can get away with filming a found footage 3D movie. And essentially, uh, dumb kids making a documentary go into the wrong graveyard. Uh, awaken the wrong spirit uh, and it jump scares them for 90 minutes or actually I think it's like 79 minutes. It's a very short movie. It's a bad movie. Uh, but if you're looking for a good drinking ba- uh, horror movie and can drink while you read subtitles uh, entity good for that reason. Uh, lots of goo, lots of goo splattering on people. I believe that is streaming on Amazon. Uh, good movies. Uh, <laughs> as I've ta- talked about before in the past, my wife and I have um, uh, liked to put on bad horror movies and drink. And sometimes we'll grab one that looks bad and it has to be a good movie. And this, is, this one is Open Grave from Gonzalo Lopez Gallego, a director who made the terrible Apollo 18. But this one is actually a really solid little movie. Uh, the screenplay was actually on the blacklist. And it's uh, Charlotte Copley, uh, overacting but not terrible, wakes up in a pit full of dead bodies, wanders to the nearby house, finds a bunch of other people, and they all have amnesia. There's a bunch of guns, and nobody knows why they're there or why there's a pit of dead bodies. And what you think is going to be sort of a saw setup ends up being something very different. I was very pleasantly surprised by the mystery of this movie and where it goes. Uh, Chris, have you seen Open Grave? 
No, I have not seen that either. I'm coming up uh, empty here. Oh, I would recommend Open Grave. I'm very, very curious to see what you think of it because it is not the movie I thought it was going to be, and it goes in directions that uh, seem genuinely unique. Uh, this is streaming on Amazon right now, uh, and yeah, it's uh, Charlotte Copley, uh, Thomas uh, Critchman, a uh, few other faces you may or may not recognize. It's low budget, but it's it's a, it's a well made movie. Very clever screenplay. I, I liked it a lot. Okay, I'm going to. <laughs> One thing we do we, we do is we'll watch a couple movies while drunk, and for the past week or so, when it's gotten to the point where um, my wife will outdrink me, will be unable to move from the couch uh, until she's ready to actually get up and go to bed. So I'll get the remote and I would put on Holmes and Watson, the Will Ferrell John T. Riley movie, over her pro- over her protesting. What? Watch- Why, Jacob? Why? <laughs> we would watch fifteen minutes or so. We then we have enough. I turn it off, and for a week. Um, Maybe a few weeks because we we don't drink every night. Uh, we, we would watch Holmes and Watson in fifteen to twenty minute chunks. Uh, this movie is remarkably Quibbies, bad, Jacob. They're called Quibbies now. <laughs> but guys, Holmes and Watson is remarkably bad. I'm fascinated by Holmes and Watson because I don't understand how it was made. Like so many bad movies, you watch and go, okay, there's a kernel of something here. There's a a, a screenplay that makes sense on, on, a, on a conceptual stage there's a, there's a leading man or leading lady here who try to build a movie around there is something there's a, a few funny gags here and there with that's not true with Holmes and Watson every scene is a misfire every joke doesn't land every single moment of Holmes and Watson is a bad bad decision and for that reason I can't help but recommend it streaming on Amazon Prime right now and I mean it is uniquely bad it is a it is like it deserves study and analysis for how it, for how wrong it goes for just how how hard it falls on its face. Who else has seen Holmes and Watson? I gotta know. I uh, used a list to see this in theaters when it came out, and I was shocked and appalled at how bad <laughs> it truly was. I I honestly I was thinking, you know what? It can't it can't be that bad. Like Wolfram and John C. Riley can't have that big of a misfire, but man, it is painfully unfunny. It's just it feels like it was made in the early two thousands, and they've just been sitting on it this entire time. I I just was floored by how terrible this movie was. I feel like if you told me that there's a movie starring that's Will Ferrell and John C. Riley playing Holmes and Watson doing really bad British accents in a movie where it's surrounded by actual British actors, that conceptually makes me laugh. And so the fact that this didn't work at all is devastating in a weird way because I, I love those two. And, man, I, I, want, I want an oral history of this movie. I need to know everything. I, if you worked on this movie, if you know somebody who did, put them in touch with me, man. I got to know what happened on the set of Holmes and Watson. Uh, bouncing back to horror movies, uh, Leatherface, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 3. Uh, this is the first one in the series not directed by Toby Hooper. And the first one is, the first movie from 1974 is just a stone-cold masterpiece. It's terrifying. The sequel is an Evil Dead 2-esque splatter comedy. It's Toby Hooper kind of giving a big old F you <laughs> to everybody uh, who wanted him to do the same thing. And part three, it's 1990. It's, it, the whole thing feels immediately tired. Uh, it's famously all the violence was chopped up with the MPAA. And the only thing of note here is that a very young Viggo Mortensen is in it. Uh, like, baby-faced Viggo Mortensen. Like, I didn't know Viggo Mortensen could look so young as he does in Leatherface. It takes me to Massacre Part 3. And this is uh, streaming on uh, Amazon, I believe. And I hadn't seen it since I was a, since I was a kid watching it in VHS. And it doesn't hold up. It's, 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 not, it's, like not even a, it's not even, like, interestingly bad, like Part 4 is. It is just 
an extremely bland slasher movie, but I know it has a following. Chris, are you a are you part of the following for Leatherface? Yeah, I like this one a lot. Um, oh, really? I kinda, yeah, I kind of like all the Texas Chainsaw movies, even though they get all of them except uh, Texas Chainsaw 3D, which is just atrocious. But uh, I, I kind of like this one. I like that it has a very grungy, nasty sort of vibe. I mean, it's really pretty much just a remake of the original, honestly. But I, 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 I dig it. Yeah. All right. So you should uh, definitely will watch Leatherface and get back to us if you're Team Chris or Team Jacob. Hashtag Team Jacob. Hashtag Team Chris. Uh, <laughs> no, email us. Uh, finally, I'll be real quick. Top Chef's back. The best reality show on TV. Uh, the only reality show I watch consistently and love every season. Uh, this is an all-star season. They brought back so many great contestants from the past, including, oh goodness, I think three contestants from my favorite season. Uh, so, yeah, Top Chef, if you want a reality show that feels like classy and is about delicious food and is about professionals being professional without too much bickering. Uh, I love top chef. It's great. Jacob last weekend, I was supposed to be at the top chef food and wine festival at universal studios. Didn't happen. So that's a shame. <laughs> uh, I feel very, I, feel, I didn't mean to feel sound sarcastic there. I, I would love to have gone to the Top Chef Food Festival Universal Studios. Yeah, that's really sad. It was a two-day thing. It was uh, March nineteenth and March twentieth, so it would have happened. Have, have you watched? Have you watched Top Chef, Peter? I've only seen a couple episodes. To be honest, I think you would dig it. I mean, if you like Survivor, it's Survivor with people being like level-headed professionals as opposed to like just yelling. So I think you would enjoy it. Survivor is not just people. Yeah, Jacob, <laughs> I need to get you to watch. A season of Survivor because I feel like you would out of anybody on this podcast, uh, maybe, and I understand the early seasons of Survivor were one completely different thing, but the seasons of Survivor that are going on now is so much. It's it's all about gameplay and manipulation, and it's it's like a big, uh, you know, it, it's uh the resistance or it is like you know it's all the board games that we like to play and like all the kind of like social deduction and manipulating kind of thing it's 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 a lot of fun i'm actually gonna back peter on this because i i used to watch survivor like the early seasons but uh jacob usually like a reality show with narrative and there's plenty of narratives and political schemes going on in survivor yeah okay i'll make you guys a deal uh peter you send me (laughs) your favorite season uh and i will give it a shot if you try out Formula One Drive to Survive on Netflix, the best thing I watched last week. Formula, really? I, I yeah. hate. Okay, fine. You know, I talked Jake, about, I talked, about, I talked about the show last week. It is it is one of the crown jewels of Netflix content. It is one of the best docu series I've ever seen. It made me care about Formula One racers, which I did not think was possible. I was I'm so invested in the two seasons of Formula One Drive to Survive. So that's the deal. You send me, uh, you DM me after this your favorite Survivor season or the one I should start with. I will buy an episode or rent the season wherever it's available. You try out Formula One Drive to Survive. I'm not sure if I like this deal, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is the deal. Okay. Yeah. Maybe maybe we'll do this deal. I'll I'll, I'll figure it out. Okay. <laughs> ben, what have you been watching? Uh, my wife and I watched Moulin Rouge for the first time. It's on HBO Go, uh, HBO Now, right now. And um, what a movie, guys. Uh, You've never I, seen Moulin Rouge? I, I know. This one, I, wow. I, I completely missed it. It came out in 2001, which is almost 20 wow. years ago now. I was obsessed with this movie in middle school. <laughs> That's the thing. I, I know a lot of people who, you know, this hit them perfectly in, in whatever sweet spot of uh, – 
of growing up and all of that kind of stuff where this movie holds a very special place in a lot of people's hearts. And having seen it finally, um, I can totally understand why. Uh, I, I think Ewan McGregor and uh, Nicole Kidman are the leads in this movie, and they are both um, really, really good. I, I, In my mind, this whole movie was going to be the two of them sort of, uh, you know, standing on rooftops and like uh, singing longing songs to each other across the Paris streets and maybe like a couple dance numbers here and there. And that is probably, I don't know, 10% of this movie. And the rest of it is totally insane. <laughs> like the first 20 minutes or something of Moulin Rouge, I was flabbergasted because this movie was like incredibly well received at the time. It, it, I think it, it was nominated for eight Oscars, including best picture and uh, watching it now for the first time, like Baz Luhrmann directed this in case you didn't know. And the stylistic choices that he made here, the editing choices, the way that it goes into this like fractured slow motion, it is like, it, it seems like, um, I'm trying to find the right way to this to say this. Uh, you know how like Michael Bay is well known for he's maybe like the most famous director right now in terms of um, like frenetic editing styles. Like none of his shots last more than, you know, two or three seconds, it seems like. Right. The first 20 minutes of Moulin Rouge, it feels like none of the shots last more than one or two seconds it feels like he was purposefully trying to outdo what michael bay would become and i realize that makes no sense uh in a lot of ways moulin rouge makes no sense to me but um it is kind of an incredible thing to watch i don't know if i can say that i enjoyed it but uh man what a movie so i i know hg especially like you already came out and said this was you know a big movie for you growing up like, what does this movie mean to you? What do you what do you think about it now? Do you still look back on it fondly? And then I want to hear from everybody else, because this is something that I don't think I've ever talked to any of you about. Oh, yeah, I still love this movie. I do know exactly what you're talking about in terms of his really frenetic and really crazed uh, editing style, which is the opening sequence where they all go on a big drug trip, which is such an odd way to open this movie because the rest of the film is still pretty conventional for a big sweeping ro romantic musical, but with some really hilarious, absurd uh, performances by supporting players. Uh, but yeah, Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman are great in this. They're so charismatic and so beautiful. And uh, I still love all of the renditions of um, all the pop songs in this movie. I think it really is kind of the pinnacle of jukebox movies for me. It's just so, um, it's just so grand, and it is bizarre in parts. But I think it really, it really works for just like the, the how stylish and crazy this film is. Does anybody else here have a relationship with Moulin Rouge? Brad, you seemed like you were surprised it had been this long. So you, did you see it at the time, or have you? Is this something you watch on a rotation? So it's funny, uh, when Moulin Rouge first came out and around the time it was uh, being talked about for all these Oscars and everything, I had kind of disregarded it because I was super into just like uh, Spielberg movies and and stuff like that. And it just it just seemed like such a wacky, uh, you know, costume kind of movie that I just didn't care about at the time. And then a friend of mine, I don't even remember who it was, like basically forced me to watch it. And they were like, you will love this movie. And so once it was out on DVD, I watched it and they were completely right uh, because not just because of like the songs that he used, but just because of that wacky style and because Ewan McGregor has the voice of an angel. Um, it's yeah, I, I love this movie. I've seen it countless times. I, I love the soundtrack. It is just it is an incredible movie musical. 
Ewan McGregor, I mean, HT, you, you were talking about how beautiful they were. I looked over at my wife at one point. I was like, man, he is just a straight up snack in this movie. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that was the beginning of uh, definitely my crush on him. <laughs> I can totally see why, especially, you know, women of any age would uh, or, or, you know, anybody who um, appreciates a, a beautiful male body would certainly uh, find a lot to like in this movie. But um, you mentioned the, the jukebox aspect of it. I wish that the songs were like full songs because it seems like that, you know, that frenetic editing style almost is translated into the music itself because it's like they, they start on one thing and then it immediately transitions into, you know, five or 10 songs within the same song. Like you hear little fragments of it, but you never really hear a sustained uh, version of a, a single song. Like you, like I normally associate with jukebox musicals. So this one is much more, um, yeah, sort of scattered than that. So well, there's only uh, like there's only two songs I think that are big medleys. A couple of several of them are the full renditions. Like Diamonds Are Girls Are Girls Best Friend is the full rendition, uh, but like the Elephant Love Medley, which is a bunch of which is the oh, one yeah. that you think of with uh, Ian McGregor and Nicole Kidman on the rooftops. Um, but they do the full version of like a Virgin, which is great. So there are like some full versions, but a lot of it is medleys. Roxanne. Yeah, oh, the Roxanne. Roxanne. Oh, still my so favorite good. rendition no, of Roxanne. Right. So good. Yeah, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. I thought they slipped in like Smells Like Teen Spirit in there as well, but I could have been, I could be mixing it up. I, there, there are so many songs in this show, but or in this movie, but uh, it's pretty wild. And then also, really quickly, just a, a very brief side note. Um, I was trying to, I was like, I kind of feel like I recognize the guy who, who's playing the Duke, um, who's like the romantic antagonist in the movie, and it's a, an actor named Richard Roxburgh. And it turns out he played Hugh in Mission Impossible 2, which is uh, Dougary Scott's, like, number one, like, right-hand man kind of guy. And looking at pictures of him in that movie versus pictures of him in Moulin Rouge, I was, like, blown away that it was the same guy. So uh, that's a very, very weird thing and a side note that maybe nobody else cares about. But I just wanted to give a quick shout-out to Richard Roxburgh. Uh, he also played Dracula in Van Helsing, the worst movie ever made. I never saw Van Helsing. Was he uh, good in it, at least? Or no, was he no, no one is good in Van Helsing. <laughs> okay, I will continue to steer clear of that um okay I, this morning on the criterion channel i watched uh, the day of the locust which is a 1975 movie directed by john schlesinger i think is how you pronounce his name this is the movie he made right before marathon man and this one stars uh surprisingly william atherton who i almost only know from his sort of like dickish roles in movies like die hard and ghostbusters um he was like the asshole of of 80s cinema of 80s comedies basically um and i didn't really i don't think i've ever seen him in anything else but this was like whatever 10 12 years before that really uh, that period of his life began and uh he's pretty good in the lead of this thing the day of the locust is like a it's like a it's set in hollywood it's supposed to be this big satire of uh, Hollywood life. It's an adaptation of, a, of evidently a very famous novel that was written in 1939. Um, Karen Black is the lead, uh, the lead actress, and Donald Sutherland is also in it. Burgess Meredith has a, a pretty small part, but he's pretty good in the in the film. Um, like I said, it's supposed to be like this big satire of of Hollywood, and I have to say for most of the runtime, this movie is about two and two hours and twenty minutes or so. I was kind of. Uh, I don't know. I, I was not fully on board with it. And then the final act comes, the final like 25 minutes or so, and it gets um, so much more impressionistic and really over the top and so unlike everything else that came before it that I almost 
want to like suggest that everybody here watch this thing just because of how those final 20 minutes really like uh, blindside you and, and sort of pack this punch that the rest of the movie does not have. But uh, I realize that's a big ask for people. But hey, I don't know, maybe if you're looking for if you're like desperate for things to watch while you're, uh, you know, quarantined at home, um, you could probably do worse than the Day of the Locust, which is on uh, Criterion Channel right now. And and again, I would really say, like, just even if, you know, if you're struggling to get through it, wait for the final uh, shoe to drop because it's it's um, pretty impressive when it does. Uh, what else? What else? I watched The Talented Mr. Ripley for the first time, I think, since it came out. I had not revisited this movie in a long, long time. I don't think my wife had ever seen it. So that's that one is on uh, it's on Netflix right now. And man, what a good movie. I really enjoyed rewatching this. It's so cool to see like this uh, incredible cast of people. You know, this movie came out in 1999 and it's got Matt Damon and Jude Law and Gwyneth Paltrow and Kate Blanchett and Philip Seymour Hoffman and these people who would essentially like dominate the movie landscape over the next 20 years. And um, they're all very, very good in this movie. It's it was nominated for five Oscars. Uh, Jude Law was nominated for Best Supporting. It was really like his sort of coming out party as an actor. It was like the movie that really put him on Hollywood's radar and uh, deservedly so because he's especially good in this. Um, Matt Damon plays this guy who basically has to go to Italy and try to retrieve a, uh, a son of a wealthy ship builder. And um, it's basically just a bunch of really great looking people lounging around in Italy for the whole movie. And Matt Damon playing sort of a psychopath who tries to uh, connive and, and con his way into these people's lives, going so far as to try to become some of these people. So um, it's a really interesting movie. I would definitely recommend it if you've not seen it and man, Matt Damon's career, like th this was, you know, so before this, he had, he was coming off a streak of the Rainmaker, Goodwill Hunting, Saving, Saving Private Ryan, Rounders, and Dogma, and then followed it up with the talented Mr. Ridley. That is an incredible run for any actor. And then in the year 2000, he was in Titan AE, The Legend of Bagger Vance, Finding Forrester, and All the Pretty Horses, <laughs> which is like a pretty steep drop off in terms of quality. But then he bounced back with Ocean's Eleven and The Born Identity a year after that. Like, you know, his his career is like kind of incredible to look at because I feel like a lot of these um, uh, quality shifts would be the heights and depths of many, many other actors' entire careers. But it's like Matt Damon just sort of breezes through it and everything rolls off his back and he just keeps going. He's he's so good. So uh, anyway, yeah, that's the talented Mr. Ripley. Has anybody else here seen this movie in, in a while? Do you guys, uh, are you as big of a fan of this one as I am? It's real good. Yep. Great movie. <laughs> All right. Good I don't need to add, but yeah. Just out of curiosity, has anybody seen any of the um, other films? Because I know that, there's a, there's a whole bunch of Ripley novels, and they've made others. Like recently, not recently, maybe ten years ago, was one of John Malkovich playing a much older Ripley. Like no, not no direct connection, but, no, but I'm curious if anybody else has like gone beyond this one. Hmm. No, I definitely haven't. I know that um, Showtime is making uh, a Ripley series of the Patricia Highsmith novels, and um, Hot Priest Andrew Scott is going to be playing Ripley in it. So that should be interesting for people too. So uh, to continue the Ripley cinematic universe, I guess, but. Um, okay, The Apartment. HT, I think you talked about this on a relatively recent episode of the show. Um, the Apartment is the 1960 movie from uh, Billy Wilder, 
and uh, Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine and Fred McMurray star in this movie. It is so, so good. I think I might have talked about it like a few years ago, um, or if I didn't, then I know HT did not too long ago, and so I, I won't go too long on this. But man, if you've never seen The Apartment, it's streaming on Amazon Prime Video right now, and uh, it's really, really good. It feels so modern, especially in the Shirley MacLaine character. She is... Uh, just lights out amazing in this movie. Um, Jack Lemmon's character is like, he's he's a nice guy, but like a 1960s version of a nice guy. So it's like a little cringe inducing to watch today under, you know, through like a, a modern lens, but it's not too bad. And uh, and man, just the, the dramatic depth that Shirley, Mac- Shirley MacLaine brings to that role is uh, it's like one of the best performances of that decade, I think. And that, that's saying a lot because there were a lot of great, great performances then. So, yes, anyway, The Apartment, it's Some fantastic. people would say it's one of the best movies ever made, maybe in the top 10 best movies ever made. But, you know, that's just some people. <laughs> that would be you, Jacob? <laughs> yeah, that would be me. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's really incredible. So, yes, please seek that out if you've never seen it. It's on Amazon Prime Video right now. And then wait, finally, wait, I wait, wait, wait a oh, second. With Jacob making a claim that's one of the top ten movies ever made, I need to hear from Jacob why why so high. Uh, it is a perfect movie, perfectly told. It, it is a screenplay full of wit, warmth, and humanity. It does not um, give pat or easy answers to tough questions. It uh, takes his characters seriously and uh, gives them strength, gives them the room and strength to grow and change. It is the perfect blend of tragedy and comedy. It's everything Billy Wilder brought to cinema, and Billy Wilder is one of the great artists of all time. Okay. Yeah, it's billed as a romantic comedy, but there is some some dark stuff in this movie um, th- that I feel like was not really being explored in mainstream American cinema at that time, and uh, it, it would be it would go on to be explored, you know, through the rest of that decade. But um, I feel like it was a little bit ahead of the curve there, so. Uh, yeah, man, The Apartment, just a phenomenal movie. And then finally, uh, I rewatched The Mask of Zorro for, a, I don't know, the hundredth time. I love this movie so much. I grew up with this movie. It was uh, a big deal for me when it came out, and my family had it on DVD, and we watched it a ton of times. I know so much of it by heart still. Uh, it is on Netflix right now. I've seen a lot of people talk about it recently. I think um, our friend of the site, Patrick H. Willems, made a video about it recently. I've not watched that yet, but uh, it's sort of been in the air a little bit. Chris, I think you covered it in a recent um, streaming column, like just a couple days ago. So that, that was a part of the reason that uh, I guess it inspired me to, um, to, to watch this thing. And man, it still holds up so, so well. It's like the perfect nineties action movie. Um, Chris, what, what do you think about it? It's so, it's so much fun. And I, I really wish they would make movies like this again, but they won't. So that's a shame, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a total blast. And uh, it's actually getting a, uh, a new 4k Blu-ray this year. And I'm, I'm very excited to get that. Oh man. That's awesome. Yeah. My wife and I were like playing the game of like, who should play whom in a, you know, a potential remake if Hollywood decided to make the same movie over again, or, or try to continue the story. Who should be, you know, the older versions of I Zorro think... and the younger version? We we're just like playing you that gotta game. You got to cast Antonio Banderas as the older version. Yeah, that's yeah. what Antonio we. Antonio Banderas what we... training Diego Luna. There we go. Yeah, that's exactly oh, the that. combination that we came up with, Jacob. That's so funny that you said that. Um, yeah, it, it, <laughs> that's great. We were trying to figure out who would play the Catherine Zeta-Jones role, though, and I was having a hard Anna time. Anna Yes. Ooh. Oh wow. Oh man, <laughs> that is. That is, it's, it seems like you've put some thought into this. No, I just thought of it, but it's 
already i mean the movie already is so perfect it's one of those peak they don't make him like this anymore but uh it would be great if uh, they had someone who wasn't uh a welsh uh wasn't a british actor playing a spanish yeah. character yeah. but yeah i still love that movie totally i remember uh, so, this yeah. vividly because um I, don't, I can't remember which vhs tape growing up but one of our vhs tapes had the trailer for this movie and i've seen that trailer at least 50 times because i watched whatever movie, that movie was 50 times and the tagline has one of the best taglines of all time, which is, in a land where justice is outlawed, the just must become outlaws. <laughs> nice. It's really good. <laughs> good stuff. Yeah, so that's on Netflix right now. I definitely recommend checking that out. Okay, uh, HT, what have you been watching? I have been watching The Outsider. I'm a little late to this series because I know that um, – Chris and a couple other people on this podcast have already watched all of it and raved about it, but um, I just started checking it out on HBO Go. And this is the uh, HBO series based on the Stephen King uh, crime novel, the same name. Uh, It's created by Richard Price and stars Ben Mendelsohn, Bill Camp, Jeremy Bob, Mayor Winningham. And it follows a, a detective, a group of detectives after the, uh, a, young boy is uh, raped and murdered by a uh, local sort of p- uh, pinnacle of the uh, small town and um, played by Jason Bateman. And uh, he, Ben Mendelsohn's detective, thinks that there might be something amiss about it. And some supernatural elements, of course, come in play with Stephen King uh, behind the helm. And um, it's great. I really, uh, I haven't finished it yet. I've really enjoyed um, the dread and paranoia that this series uh, has. I do think that the character writing um, is a little messy, be- especially in the middle episodes. Uh, it feels like a little bit of wheel spinning, especially uh, in terms of where they're taking Ben Mendelsohn's character and his um, sort of uh, reluctance to buy into the more supernatural elements of the plot. Uh, Cynthia Riva also stars and is great as a character as a private investigator who is seemingly on the spectrum, maybe has some sort of supernatural powers to her too. Um, but I'm really liking it. I think the um, direction especially is quite striking. I know that Jason Bateman directed the first episode. And they have a few other directors like Karen Kusama who uh, directed a, a few episodes and it looks really great. And again, like the mood is fantastic. The writing is a little bit to be desired, but um, I'm liking it so far. Uh, ben Mendelsohn is also fantastic uh, as a, True detect- as a detective who is almost laughably kind of that classic hard-boiled detective who always trusts his guts and um, has only uh, wants to seek out justice, but um, he's he's great at it, and uh, I like um I like the series so far. So that's The Outsider, streaming on HBO Go, or HBO Now. Um, I wanted to I forgot what everyone uh, ha- thought about it, but uh, Chris, did you like The Outsider? Being the st- biggest Stephen King fan. Uh, yeah, I think it's it has like two episodes too many. Like there, there, are, there's a lot of like downtime, which on some levels I appreciate, but some like there's like whole episodes where characters are just in cars driving to get food, and it's like, all right, I I don't <laughs> they could have cut this down and made this a little tighter, but I I liked it overall. It, it, uh, the the cast is great, and uh, yeah, I actually kind of liked it a little bit more than the book. So yeah, I, I liked it. 
All right. Um, and other things I've been watching, I've both mostly been rewatching. Uh, I rewatched The Parent Trap on Disney Plus, which is a comedy, family comedy directed by Nancy Myers that I love, loved when I was young. I had the VHS of it, and I would watch it over and over again. It's a remake of um, uh, I can't remember what the year, the 1961 film. And uh, it's uh, the new the 1998 film stars Lindsay Lohan playing the dual roles of two twins who were separated at birth and discover that they're twins when they meet at camp and uh, decide to switch places and get their parents back together. And those parents are played by Dennis Quaid and Natasha Richardson. And um, this is it's such a fun movie. I really it's like a warm blanket to watch when um, because I've seen it so many times and I remember so many of the beats, but actually haven't having not seen it in a while. I a couple other new things kind of occurred to me. Um, The the first half of the film is very much of the Disney family comedy, um, you know, set in the camp, all about the kids shenanigans and their pranks, which get to sort of home alone levels in terms of the absurdity and the, the complexity. But the second half is almost a screwball romantic comedy. And I really enjoyed that, especially being older and being able to appreciate uh, Dennis Quaid's charms. And he's great in this. I um, was actually quite surprised by how just like how charming he is in this movie um, and how he's almost channeling some Cary Grant-esque uh, screwball um, skills, especially in the scene where uh, the sort of sequence where he and his ex-wife meet in the hotel for the first time. It's it's fun and very screwball and just like such it has such great energy to it. And um, Nancy Myers really just uh, you can see a lot of her her staples, her hallmarks in this film. And uh, I always really enjoy this film, The Parent Trap. So that's on Disney Plus now. If you guys want to revisit that. Um, but speaking of screwball comedies, after watching this with my roommate again, uh, I was kind of <laughs> raving about the Carrie, about Cary Grant in general. And um, we decided to watch His Girl Friday which I talked about recently um, on the podcast, having rewatched it again uh, maybe a couple months ago uh, on Amazon Prime, but His Girl Friday actually got released on uh, Criterion on the Criterion channel recently. So uh, I wanted to check it out because I assumed it would be better quality than the one on Amazon, which was really horrendously um, <laughs> low quality. I was so upset by that. Um, but it is much better quality on, on the Criterion channel, and I was very happy to see that. So we watched that, and yeah, it's great. I don't really have much to add, but um, I know there is a, a recent discussion or like a revival of the discussion of whether His Girl Friday is good on Twitter, and it was just... Bad takes all around, so His Girl Friday is good. Hot uh, take? I don't know. Uh, it, it's, <laughs> it is funny. After The Parent Trap, you could have went with Freaky Friday, but you went with His Girl Friday. Oh, we actually did watch Freaky Friday a couple weeks ago. but Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you had two Friday films to go off from that uh, branching narrative. Okay, uh, let's move on to what we've been eating. Brad, <laughs> you weren't on last week, so you must have been eating lots of bad stuff. Tell us about it. Yeah, I mean, it's getting close to Easter time. So the seasonal aisle at various stores, uh, grocery stores, is full of Easter candy. Uh, so I tried out some new stuff that's out there. Swedish fish uh, has been turned into jelly beans, and they're pretty good. They they taste just like Swedish fish, as you can imagine, but they're in uh, jelly bean form. And like sometimes Swedish fish, I don't know if it's just like 
if it depends on where you get them or like how old they are or whatever. But sometimes Swedish fish seem like they're a little too, uh, I don't know, stiff as far as chewiness is concerned. Um, and but for some reason, jelly beans, which are obviously harder and and more chewy than gummies, I was totally on board with, and they're they're delicious. Uh, and the same can be said for new Starburst soda pop jelly beans, which taste like various soda pop flavors, like orange and grape and lemon lime and whatnot. They're not remarkably different from the actual branded soda pop jelly beans that like Jelly Belly has, because they have uh, like orange and grape crush and AW root beer and Seven Up jelly beans, which are also really good. And th- these aren't remarkably different from that. They're just branded. Um, as Starburst jelly beans. So, you know, whatever. Wait, wait, wait and, a second. Uh, so Swedish fish jelly beans, are all the jelly beans the same flavor? That's the same red Swedish fish flavor? Yeah. E- so even though there are other flavors of Swedish fish, like there's, they have like a tropical Swedish fish um, package that you can get that has, that has different flavors. These are strictly just the regular red Swedish fish jelly bean flavor. Weird. Yeah. Um, but they're good. Like I said, if you like, if you like Swedish fish, you'll like the jelly beans. Um, a weird thing that I went out of my way to try when I saw them, because I was just perplexed by how it would taste and how it would be good, was um, Russell Stover has this new these new things called sours for Easter, which are you can either get them in big, uh, big like chocolate bunny form, or in a small package that has them in like tiny bite sized versions. Uh, they're like I said, they're called sours, and they are white chocolate with fruit flavors that have kind of a, a sour flavor to them. And they are really odd. Um, they, the three flavors they have included are watermelon, cherry, and blue raspberry. And maybe it's just me not being used to the idea of having like a fruit-flavored white chocolate, but there's they have kind of like a funky aftertaste that makes it feel really artificial, even more artificial than, you know, these candy fruit flavors normally are. And it's, it's all kind of frustrating, um, too, because the cherry and watermelon colors are so close together that it's hard to tell which is which. And I ended up liking the watermelon a little bit more than the cherry, but would sometimes end up grabbing a cherry and be, just be mad about it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, those those aren't good. I'm just going to put that out there. Russell Stover sours, not, not tasty. And then uh, since we St. Patrick's Day came and went, I had never seen this out before, but apparently it's it's a famous uh, thing. Uh, Green River Soda is a popular St. Patrick's Day drink, I guess, uh, to try. It's a lime-flavored soda, and it, it's pretty good. It's um, It tastes not too dissimilar from your standard lemon-lime soda, like a, a 7-Up or a Sierra Mist or, uh, or even a Mountain Dew. Um, but it's, it's not bad. It is purely green soda. So like it turns your mouth green and everything. Um, and it's, uh, not bad. I, I enjoyed it, but now it's gone because St. Patrick's day is over and the time has passed. And then there's a new Fanta flavor. Um, I, not too long ago, I gushed about a Fanta flavor that is much more commonly available in areas like Florida. There's a mango, uh, Fanta flavor. And, but this one is new. That's everywhere. It's pina colada Fanta. And it smells like suntan lotion and tastes like pina colada, but it's not the best. Like, I I enjoy pina colada for the most part, um, but there's something about it that just, I don't know, it doesn't feel right as a soda. And I I don't know if it's mostly because pina coladas are usually enjoyed frozen. And so having it in such a purely liquid form as opposed to being much cooler and 
uh, icier. It do- it doesn't land as well. Um, but it's it's fine. It's not the best. And then uh, oh yeah, so randomly found this out because before this whole self quarantine coronavirus stuff started, my uh, girlfriend had uh, some of her friends over to do some uh, makeup stuff, and they had like a brunch thing. And I found out that apparently combining cantaloupe and prosciutto goes together really well. You just have a slice of cantaloupe and you wrap a thing of prosciutto around it, and it's pretty damn tasty. I was surprised because it sounded like a gross combination, but it's <laughs> it's pretty good. Oh, that's it's great. I usually don't like um, the salty and sweet combos, but that's one of the exceptions. If you drink, if you eat that with a glass of rosé, it's even better, and you feel just like the perfect bougie, bougie little <laughs> meal. I'll have to give that a shot with the rosé next time then. That sounds so gross. I don't know. It's really good. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I guess, let's, uh, Ben, what have you been eating? Uh, well, I learned a trick about scallions or green onions that I figured might be helpful to some people, um, especially right now. Uh, my wife and I eat a lot of green onions. We you know, cut them up and, and put them on a ton of meals that we make at home. And I just now, we've been doing this for years, by the way, and I just now somehow learned that uh, green onions grow back. So if you like don't cut them all the way down and if you stick the roots in just like a cup of water uh, over the next couple days, it'll basically just grow back. Evidently, this only happens, you know, a few times. It's not going to happen forever. But um, instead of just going out to the store and having to buy, you know, package after package or grouping after or whatever you call a little bundle of, of scallions or green onions, um, yeah, evidently you can, uh, I'm doing it right now. I'm growing it and I can see in my kitchen the, the progress that's been made over the past couple of days. And it's kind of blowing my mind because I never gave this a second thought, never even thought about this before, but, uh, yeah, all you do is just stick the roots in, in a bowl of water and there you go. So, um, Wait, hopefully that can... how fast does it grow back? Uh, well, I did it. I think I want to say it's been three days and there's probably i don't know uh, two inches of growth already like it, it's pretty quick um so yeah it, it's uh it's kind of amazing it's very fast and um it, it you have to do it about maybe like two or three inches above the root um and then but and then it'll just be like perfect so you just put that in like a little glass full of water yeah it's awesome wow okay so we we, we learned some some food tips on today's episode <laughs> let's let's move on to what we've been playing jacob what have you been playing uh yeah i decided that i needed a game to focus on uh so my three projects uh paint the miniatures i haven't painted yet read more manga and uh finally after three years beat the legend of zelda breath of the wild and nintendo switch i've been kind of game i it's not that I, I bounce off it not because it's like not a great game but because it's such a huge game they get distracted by other things so with nothing to distract me, I'm finally going to take the 100 plus hours needed to drain that game of everything to do. So, watch this space. I'm shocked. Like looking at my my Twitter feed and also Kitra, you know, is just stuck to her Nintendo Switch. I'm shocked that no one here is playing Animal Crossing. Uh, I the I appreciate those games. <laughs> They're very relaxing for the people who like them. Uh, I'm not so sure if they're for me. Maybe I'll try to do them crossing at some point, but when I have such a backlog of games, including you know one from 2017, like Zelda, uh, yeah. not yet. We'll, we'll see how things go if I need to, if I need it in a few months. 
I would love to, but I don't have a Nintendo Switch, and I'm poor from all the art I brought. I bought. <laughs> and your roommate's yelling at you for to stop buying more art. She right? is actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she said, "Are you are you browsing for art again?" And I, I yeah, it's it's become a problem. <laughs> Welcome to my world, uh, Brad. What have you been playing? Uh, so I finally got back to playing Spider-Man on the PlayStation 4. When, uh, when I first got my PlayStation 4 last year, uh, I played it pretty uh, ferociously and really dug into it. And then I just got busy with other stuff. And every time I would think about trying to play it, I'd be like, no, I want to play it for a, a long time and really get back into it. And I just never had that amount of time to be able to invest in it. But that has changed dramatically uh, in recent weeks. <laughs> so I finally dug back into it and I've been making progress. This game is so much fun. Uh, I love the story turns that it's taken. There, um, without giving anything away for anyone who's played it, even though it's been out for a couple of years, uh, just the the big turn at the um, towards the the end when things start going a little bit crazier in the city for a, a certain reason. It's it's made make things so much fun, and it's such a fast paced uh, game. You really you it really just makes you feel like Spider Man with how. Uh, quick you move and you um you know predict being shot at and shooting different web gadgets and everything i just i love this game so much it's easily one of my one of my favorite video games of all time but that's not all you've been playing no it's it's not um there's a new uh call of duty game that is essentially taking um advantage of the popularity of big battle royale games like fortnite and whatnot and it's call of duty warzone what's great about this is even if you don't have uh, a Call of Duty game, the the newest Call of Duty Modern Warfare. You can download this for free to play, and I've been playing it with some friends. It mixes up the multiplayer stuff in just the right amount of way to change the strategy uh, to make it a little bit more engaging. Uh, as much as I love kind of just instant action and jumping into multiplayer um, and just doing uh, basically death matches and whatnot, this one is a little bit more fun because if you uh, if you have some friends that you can play with and like talk to each other on the headset. Uh, it makes it a little bit more engaging because the way the game plays out is uh, there's squads of three and it's a uh, there's 150 players in this huge map and it's a, a battle to the death, basically. And so you walk around all the different maps scavenging for weapons and ammo and armor. And all the while, there's this encircling um gas that gets closer and closer and makes the battlefield smaller and smaller so that even if you're hiding or you know staking out a spot somewhere you eventually have to meet up with whoever else is uh left over to you know fight to the death and so it's it's really fun um the best we've done so far with a couple of my friends who i play with is we've, we've gotten 10th place as a squad which you know seems like it's pretty good and uh yes it's what's interesting about it too is if you die in the middle of the game you get sent to the gulag uh, to get a chance to come back and play where you are put in this prison and you're it's a small fighting arena where you are equipped with like a pistol and a couple other random things. And if you win this one-on-one -on -one match, then you get to go back into the game. But that's your last second chance unless your teammates have enough money to revive you from designated spots on the map. So you, you definitely... It makes you more careful on the battlefield. It makes you, you know, you work as a team and move around, and it's it's, it's a lot of fun. So if you have extra time in your hands and you like first-person shooters, uh, you can download Call of Duty Warzone for free on Xbox and PlayStation 4. 
Okay, that does it for today's Slash Home Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashHome.com. You can find this podcast published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to Peter at SlashHome.com. And write and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. Hey, hey, Peter. Jacob, you know, I've been thinking about this. Like, mm-hmm. it, it, it's... It's interesting, Link, when picking, there's been 40 seasons of Survivor, and trying Uh to pick for one for you to watch, I don't know, like, because some of the best seasons are the ones where, like, the favorites are back in the game, but I feel like that requires, like, that's like you watching a movie sequel without seeing the original, so, like... Yeah, well, well, speaking of favorites being back in the game, Louis A. Safian, (sighs) who's gargantuan book of insult, defense, and affrontery, sharper torch for posts, cost equips, and by put-down... Is right in front of me. By the way, I did some research. Did you know that Louis A. Safian was a theater producer? Really? Yeah, he has. He produced three plays. He produced three of the greatest plays of all time. He produced Great Scott, opened September second, nineteen twenty nine. He produced Phantoms, opened January thirteenth, nineteen thirty, and he opened. Uh, he produced Gold Braid, opened May thirteenth, nineteen thirty. What masterpieces? Uh- <laughs> Uh, okay <laughs> yeah anyway I hope this is his book <laughs> to the meanies section because we're all so mean in quarantine uh, Peter if you kicked him in, if, you, if, if you kicked Peter in his heart you'd break your toe so my heart is hard if you yeah. kicked Peter in his heart you'd break your toe you got Ben it. Ben <laughs> He'll cry over your wounds. Ben will cry over your wounds so he can get salt in them. <laughs> Cruel. Cruelty. That seems like H-T. a long way to go. HT, she'd steal a dead fly from a blind spider. Oh. Brad, he has as much use for anyone living as an undertaker. That sounds about right. And Chris, he has a testimonial plaque from Simon Legree. Who? Oh, I don't even care. Chris, Chris, Chris has a testimonial plaque from Simon Legree. That explains everything. Mm. Yeah, Simon Legree. Everyone, everyone knows that reference. <laughs> that is in no way dated. That is, a, that, is, that is a reference we all understand entirely, and it is very funny. <laughs> Simon Legree is a slave owner who has Tom flogged to death oh, in no. Uncle Tom's cabin. Oh my god! Oh, god. <laughs> oh no! We all understood that reference. It was in no way deeply dated and offensive. Wow. We probably should record that last one again. <laughs> Wait, so, so now that we have the knowledge of the reference, like what does the joke mean again? The joke means that um Simon Legree approves of Chris. Oh, oh wow. Oh wow. I, mean, I, I guess that's better than being Simon Legree, maybe. I don't know. Maybe it's not. He approves your of your methods. He approves oh. the man oh. who who beats African Americans to death. <laughs> oh, right. I, no, I, no. I don't approve of any of this. <sighs> Thank you, Louis A. Safian. <laughs> Look, as we all know, he's from a different time, producing plays in the 30s. Yes. <laughs> they, they loved jokes like this back then.